Good morning. Well, I hope you have your Bibles. Let's get them out. Open up to James chapter 2 so we can continue in our series through the book of James together. I hope you were enjoying those pictures as I was of people uh, in their uh, living rooms and how they are engaging with us online. And I want to encourage you to keep sending those in. It's just a blessing. It's another way we get to connect with each other uh, by just being able to see the different settings that we're in as we're growing together and experiencing what Christ has for us. And keep in mind that in the book of Acts and in Scripture, what we see is that when God wants to do something really great amongst His people, He would disperse them. He would move them out of the building, if you will. And that's the exact context we have in the book of James, where James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, is writing to many of the people that have been dispersed, many of whom are from his church. And he's writing to them and he's giving them practical instruction. And you can tell by the way James uh, is written, the things, the way he says things, that it's very pastoral. Um, so I can relate a lot to the book of James and the way that he chooses to speak to people whom he loves. But let's pray together. So I'd like us to do what we've been doing the last few weeks. I'd like you to to pray out loud. So if you're in a if your family's together, then somebody pray. If you're by yourself, you pray out loud, and then I'll pray and close us. But let's pray and ask God to speak to us and ask His blessing on this time that we might be transformed for his glory and our good so let's pray you pray father we thank you for this morning we thank you for each one who's represented this morning we thank you father god for the lord jesus for the way of salvation that he has made for us and lord we thank you for your word we thank you that the answers to the questions that we need the questions that we ask every day are found in your word lord in a world that's clamoring for something to believe we possess this eternally inerrant, perfect gift that you've given us. And so, Lord, may you deepen our devotion to you through your word this morning. May you uh, enlighten our eyes and our minds that we might live out the things that you show us. And, Lord, that we would be a people that are about your business for your glory. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of this time that we find ourselves in. We thank you for the receptive nature of people all around us, Lord, as fear spreads and confusion abounds. God, what an opportunity it is for your people to be a city on a hill that shines brightly, the goodness of their Father. So I thank you for the things you're going to say specifically this morning, I pray that you will take control and command of my thoughts and my mouth. And Lord, that you'll speak through me and that God, 
you'll be the one who's heard this morning and that your people would have ears to hear and respond rightly to the hearing of your word for your honor and praise. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to get a little uh, theological this morning. It's going to be a, a good time that we have together. We're sort of in the meat, the heart of the book of James. And uh, these are some of the most familiar and uh, popular passages in the book of James. I've taught on them many times, and yet it's very exciting to have this before us again this morning. And God knows, you know, he knows that we're 13 days away from meeting together. We'll be together in 312 hours. And if you subtract the time that we'll be asleep, it'll only be 208 hours of being awake. So we're getting close. It's just 13 days, and I'm very excited about that. Things have already, the the musicians have already started practicing. Um, all, I'm so grateful for our amazing children's workers and for all the people that have uh, just stepped up to serve. Our security teams already uh, met and prepared to move into two services. So many ministry leaders have been busy. Uh, it's just been a really wonderful, fruitful time. And our uh, sort of our uh, motto or our mindset going into this next season has really been all hands on deck. Our hope and our prayer is that every single member of this family would be engaged and involved, especially on Sunday mornings. You can serve without having to miss church now, and uh, it's just important. We need everybody to step up and be a part, and uh, I'm just grateful to be a part of a church where uh, the the majority of people are just so excited about serving the Lord and being a part. What a what a blessing it is. All right, so get out your listening guide. Uh, if you printed that out or you're going to fill that in on your computer, get that out. And let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump in, okay, with some true things. Truth. This is true. Number one, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It ruins everything. It's all Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's Jesus alone who saves. It's not Jesus plus anything. We don't add anything to it. It's not Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus growing up in a Christian home. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus living a good life. It's not trying harder. It's just Jesus. And we no longer do the things we used to do. We no longer love the things we used to love because we're no longer the people that we used to be. And that's what's such a blessing. And so what we find out when we're in Christ is that we have a new identity that results in new activity. See, a new identity results in new activity. So it's true Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It's true a new identity is going to yield new activity. So now we, we love. See, our identity changed. And with that, our priorities change. Our loves change. We, we love, we serve, we give. Not so that God would love us because in Christ He already does. Not so that God would accept us because in Christ He already has. It's not those things. It's that we have a new identity. We're a new creation. And so everything's changed. And so in everything changing, that's part of the transformation. So if 
It's true that Jesus plus anything ruins everything. If it's true that a new identity results in a new activity. But yet it's also true that the world is filled with people who say they're going to heaven because of what they believe in spite of the way they live. Now, I'm talking about people who a lot of people like me and you would be very tempted to give them the benefit of the doubt, would, would be very tempted to say, well, you know, the, you know, they're saved. They're, they're just a little different than I am. They're just not as committed as they need to be. Or then we make up terms that aren't in the Bible. We make up things like, well, they're backslid. Well, I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but I know this. Jesus didn't make up that word. We made it up. Church people made it up. It's a way to make an excuse for something, or we we just change things around. So James comes along, and he's going he's gonna to take the tension that exists between those truths, and he's going to dive right into it, because he's talking to people he loves, just like I'm talking to people I love. And here's what we want. We want to be clear. We want clarity. We don't want to be cloudy on the most important issue of, in the world, which is the issue of faith. We want to be crystal clear. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to get clear. So James is going to give us some examples. And here's the first example he's going to give us. Dead faith. He's going to show us that there's such a thing as dead faith. Now, it's faith, but it's dead. Look at verse 14, James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren? So who's he talking to? His family, brothers and sisters. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Can faith save him? Can that faith save? That's the question. Well, let's get a working definition of faith because James is pressing in on this issue. So faith is an inward conviction that leads to an outward action, which is very different than an inward belief because a conviction leads to an outward action. So you can believe something, but until you act upon it, it's really not faith. You just you might believe it to be true, but it's not faith until you act upon it. James is going to give clarity. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one says to him, well, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, a person who who would say, well, I have faith. I'm a I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. But they see people that are in need. And rather than meeting their needs, they just give them some empty words. Well, oh, go in peace. Be filled. Well, how am I going to be filled if I'm hungry? If I could be filled, I wouldn't be hungry. I'd already be full. But since you won't help me, I remain hungry. And you telling me to be filled and walking away 
with a full belly and a full cupboard and a full fridge and me being hungry is not doing anybody any good. See, James says that this is an example of it's dead faith. Now, think about think about dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. Dead people do nothing. Well, what does dead faith do? Nothing. It does nothing. It says, dead faith says, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I was baptized in the church. I grew up in the church. I did a lot of church things. I went to church camp when I was a teenager. Or I made a profession of faith at VBS. Or I got baptized when I was a kid. Or I did this or I did that. Or maybe I served in this way or served in that way. I was part of this or part of that. I did all of these things. But nothing ever really changed. And what about today? What about what, what do you see when you look in the mirror? What does dead faith see when it looks in the mirror? Well, dead faith, dead faith doesn't serve sacrificially. Dead faith doesn't give sacrificially. Dead faith doesn't care. Because it's dead. It's dead faith. It has no life. It's lukewarm religion. It's religion that is content to be lukewarm because it, it's convinced itself that being lukewarm is better than being cold. And being hot is maybe too hard or it's for uh, special circumstances or it's something that you might get to later on. But you're perfectly content to be lukewarm. Yet the Bible is not content with lukewarm religion. In fact, the Bible says that you're better to be cold or hot, but lukewarm is what Jesus said is vomited out of the mouth of God. You see, we have to remember here that James is asking, does this faith save? Can it save? I mean, what does save? Does Church doesn't save. Jesus saves. Tradition doesn't, doesn't save. Jesus saves. Religion won't save. Jesus saves. See, Jesus is the only one that saves. But how does that work? What does useless dead faith look like in our context? What is the most common way we're going to we're going to encounter dead faith in in this context that we're in us well i think it's going to look like somebody who is all doctrine and no devotion that's usually the dead faith i encounter it's people who know all sorts of bible doctrine they 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 have all this information but they don't there's not they, they don't have a transformed life they haven't become more humble they haven't become more compassionate they're not living a sacrificial life see they'll say to you you'll say well well do you serve and and they'll say oh yes i serve but they serve sort of you know in what they do you know they so they're they're into they're into doctrine they're into information they're into they they love that that's their thing they go from one bible study to the next bible study to the next bible study so they'll say well i well, i lead a bible study or i lead this or i lead that but that's what they're into but here here's my question 
What do you willfully and joyfully do that you don't want to do for God? What do you willfully and joyfully do that you don't want to do for God? That's sacrificial service. You see, it's not sacrificial to do the thing that you're into, to do the thing that just puffs up your pride, to do the thing that just builds up your reputation, because that's all that dead faith is usually into. It's all doctrine, no devotion. Is that you this morning? Is that you? It's a type of faith that wants Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. But not as Lord. Now that Jesus, understand, is a figment of the American imagination. That Jesus does not exist in the Bible. Someone who says, well, I received Jesus as Savior, and then years passed, and then then He became my Lord. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Now, I understand how that oftentimes happens. See, there's some of you who are listening to this right now. And what happened to you was you heard somebody say that. And then you thought to yourself, you know what? That's sort of how it happened to me. That's my story. And so now you say it. But... That's not biblical salvation. In other words, I'm not saying that there's not times where we have great sanctification. See, sanctification sometimes comes in small baby steps. That's normal. And then sometimes there are big, giant seasons of of wonderful, exciting, amazing growth. And we certainly see that around here all the time as well. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the person who has dead faith. They have dead faith. And they, they want a Savior. They want to be forgiven of their sin. They, want to, they say that they're going to go to heaven when they die. But He's not their Lord. He's not the one calling the shots in their life. You see, according to the Bible, you can't meet Jesus and not change. You can't do that. There's no... There's no realm of possibility where the God of the universe can fill you with His Spirit and you not change. So what happens is that the person that says, well, I got saved, I received Him as my Savior, but then later on He became my Lord. Well, what happened was when He became your Lord, that's when you got saved. Because apart from lordship, there is no salvation. Jesus isn't coming in any other way but as Lord. He's not coming first as one thing and then later as another thing. No, He only comes as Lord. See, it's very simple. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. It's that simple. There's no reason to get confused about it. James is just drawing a line in the sand so that we can all understand. He's saying there's such a thing as dead faith. But then number two, he's saying there's such a thing as demon faith. Demon faith. Look at verse 18. 
But someone will say, you see, James, this is how you can tell James is a pastor. There's two indications of the pastoral nature of James. The first one is he repeats himself. Every pastor knows that if you want people to remember things and get things and understand things, you have to say it over and over and over. Well, James says the same thing four times in this one passage. But the second thing James does is he also understands the arguments that his audience is going to have. And so he addresses them as he's being led by the Holy Spirit to know what the people who are listening are going to think. And oftentimes, as I'm praying and preparing a sermon, the Spirit of God will lead me in to say the things that I know that you're thinking. Now, I can't know that, but God shows that to me because He wants us to hear from Him. He wants us to receive Him and know Him and understand Him. And so James says, here's the argument. Someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? Will you do well? And then James is a a bit of a smart aleck. Now, Now, I'm not ever a smart aleck, but James is. Even the demons believe and tremble. So there's demon faith. Now, what's demon faith? Well, I'll give you three examples of demon faith. Number one. They, demonic faith has information, but not transformation. Information, but not transformation. You see, the demons, they know doctrine. They know theology. They know Jesus. Look at what the Bible says. Mark chapter 1, verse 34. Then he, this is Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. See that? The demons know Jesus. What about Luke chapter 4? And demons also came out of many crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. You see that? Listen, demons... They know. They have all the information. And it's not wrong information. It's correct information. It's not just what you know. It's how that knowledge transforms you. If that knowledge doesn't transform you, then you're no different from demons. I mean, all these people that would say, well, I met Jesus. I know Jesus. I prayed a prayer. I made peace with God. Whatever it is they say. But there's no change in their life there's no transformation that's impossible it's impossible another example of demon faith would be demon faith has information but not affection not affection you see here's what the bible would teach about genuine saving faith it's going to teach a lot about that a a true believer is going to produce fruit and then there's The book of Galatians teaches us about the different fruit of the Spirit and all these sorts of things. But sort of on a global level, whenever the Bible is talking about saving faith, saving faith is always going to produce love for God and love for people. Those are going to be the two most evident, obvious things 
that saving faith is going to produce. So when I'm looking at a life, when I'm examining the fruit of someone's life, that's where I'm always going to start. Now, demonic faith lacks affection. You see, now both of those things are affection issues, love for God, love for people. So, for example, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You see, obedience flows out of love. Anything that, the, any actions that flow out of something other than love are wrong motivations and aren't obedience. Now, you could do the things, you could actually do things that the Bible calls us to do, and it's not obedience if it's not done in love. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And then remember when Jesus was talking in uh, Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus says now there's, there's two groups of people, and he, he separates those two groups of people. The sheep are on his right, and the goats are on his left. And what does, it, what does he say to the goats? He says, Then I will say to those on my left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Inasmuch as you did not do this for the least of these, you did not do it to me. You see? Love for people. Love for God. Love for people. Demonic faith has all the information, all the doctrine, all the knowledge, but no affection. The third example of demonic faith is that it, it has information in opposition. In opposition. Now, this is what I've already talked a little bit about, is that there's information, but it's, it rejects the lordship of Jesus. It's in opposition to the lordship of God. So Jesus says in the book of Luke, he says, well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? In other words, what Jesus is saying is that you can't call me Lord and not do the things I say. I'm not your Lord unless you are obeying me as Lord. It's, it's not that complicated, but somehow we manage to get these, these simple, clear issues so convoluted and and fuzzy and foggy in real life. It's just amazing. I mean, think of all the people sitting around having these high and lofty theological discussions. And they're doing nothing. They're... they're you know, reading all these books, which I love to read, and they're having all these deep discussions, which I love to have. But that's all they do. They, they never do anything. They never act on all of this information. They're in opposition to this information. You see, here's, here's the thing you got to understand about demon faith. 
demons would ace most classes in seminary. In fact, I'm not sure, but I, I'm, I think I went to seminary with a couple of demons. Because demons have all the information. You see, every test that you would you give a demon about theology, they're going to ace it because they know it. They know all about God. They know God better than you'll ever know God or I'll ever know God. They, as far as the information goes, they've got it down. But James goes on. Look at what he says in verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man? Do you want to know? That faith without works is dead. It's dead. That faith without evidence. Remember uh, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Matt taught and he talked about how obedience is the validation of our faith. It's the validation of our hearing. The way that we know that we actually hear is because we obey. We're not hearing if we're not obeying. It's not validated. So we have dead faith. We have demon faith. And then we have distinguishable faith. We actually have faith that's distinguishable, that's visible, that you can see, that's tangible. So James is going to, Give us the example for that. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? Now, now let's just think about what's going on. Abraham, the patriarch of our faith. God comes to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. He, he chooses Abraham of all the people on the earth, this pagan uh, idolater who's done nothing to deserve anything. God chooses him and tells him he's going to make him the father of a people. He's going to make him the, the beginning, the first seed of a great people. And Abraham's old. And his wife Sarah's old. And Abraham wants to be a, a father. He wants a son. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. And then years pass. And there's no son. And there's a whole story of patience in that process. But then God gives him a son, Isaac. And he cherishes that son. He loves that son. And you know the story. God tells Abraham to take his son. And all his supplies and go up on top of the mountain and build a sacrifice to sacrifice that which is most precious to Abraham. And so in this beautiful picture of what's to come, I mean, think about the, the details where Isaac carries the wood up the mountain. The sacrifice carries the wood. Jesus carries the cross. You see, it's a picture. 
It's a picture of uh, Abraham, a father, and his beloved son, Isaac. God, a father, and his beloved son, Jesus. But you see, for Abraham, it was just faith being perfected through his works. And so Abraham takes his son up the mountain, not because it was logical, not because it was practical, not because it made sense to him, not because it was efficient, not because it was easy, but because he loved God, because he trusted God. The book of Hebrews actually says when it talks about this uh, passage, he talks about how Abraham, by faith, he believed that even if God wouldn't have intervened and saved his son that God could raise him from the dead that Abraham believed that by faith now Abraham did it because he loved him he loved him so the question about distinguishing faith for us this morning is well what precious Isaac in your life are you holding on to what are you unwilling to put into the hands of God to trust God with You see, distinguishable faith, it acts upon, it acts upon what it believes. You know, you didn't have to wonder. Nobody who knew Abraham wondered if he believed in God. I mean, can you imagine uh, a conversation with Sarah or a conversation with one of Abraham's servants? Oh, you know, what do you think? Do you think Abraham believes in God? Do you think Abraham has real faith? I mean, it would have been absurd. Are you kidding me? It was distinguishable. It was evident. Look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then he was called a friend of God. It was distinguishable. Verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. See, you might want to underline verse 24 in your Bible. It it sounds a little contradictory, doesn't it? It sounds there's something inside you that wants to push back a little bit at that, isn't there? Yeah, We'll, we'll come back to that. Likewise... Let's look at the next distinguishable example. Was not Rahab the harlot who also was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So you remember Rahab, she lived in Jericho. Joshua sends the spies into the promised land and they go into Jericho. And of course, the the people of the city are looking for, the authorities are looking for the spies and they want to capture them and kill them. And Rahab, the harlot, takes them in and hides them and then tells the the guards that she doesn't know where they went and sends them the other way. And so what did, what did Rahab do? What did she do? She endangered herself at the expense of helping others escape. She didn't just say, well, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, I've heard about this God, the God of the Israelites and all these amazing things that he's done. She didn't just say that when it it came to crunch time. She put herself in jeopardy. If she would have been found out to be harboring those spies, it would have been over for her. She knew that. 
But she did it anyway. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Do you think James just randomly pulled these two examples, Abraham and Rahab, sort of? Of all of the examples James could have chosen, why did he choose these two? Isn't that interesting? Why? Why is it that in this moment when James is arguing for the distinguishing marks of saving faith, he doesn't give us a theological formula. He doesn't give us a doctrinal statement. He gives us an example of two people, two life examples that just confirm what I've already said. Saving faith always produces love for God, Abraham, and love for others, Rahab. See, it, here, here's, what, here's how Martin Luther put it. He said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's never alone. Faith alone saves, but that faith is going to have other things with it. It's going to take its most prized possession and put it in the hands of God and trust God. It's going to sacrificially serve. It's going to put, uh, it's going to put itself even in danger or uncomfort in, or whatever the case may be for the benefit of others. Oh, yes. So now let's go back to James's statement that we underlined in verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Is that a contradiction? Is it a contradiction to what the Apostle Paul teaches? Is it a, is it a contradiction to Paul's words in Romans chapter 3? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. What about that? People say, well, I don't believe in the Bible because there's contradictions in the Bible. Well, wonderful. Whenever somebody says that to you, always just respond and say, really, what are they? Because 99% of the time, they have no answer. Or when they do have an answer, it's clearly and obviously not a contradiction. But what do we what we have here? Uh, it, it could be a contradiction, but let's talk about it. Well, first of all, who was Paul? Paul was the man chosen by God to bring the gospel to whom? Gentiles. That's what he did. And so, in doing so, Paul, what Paul says is in the context of that. But nonetheless, for example, Paul says the same thing James says if you just keep reading. Like if you read in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ. How do you become an heir? Can you earn the right to be an heir? No, it has to be given to you. An inheritance can't be earned, it's given. And so, but notice, notice the word if. If, if indeed we suffer with him. What? In other words, we, 
We don't want if. We just want to be heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. We want to be God's adopted children to say, Abba, Father. But it's conditional. He says, if we suffer with Him. Or take, for example, what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Let me, let me ask you a question. Can you examine something that's invisible? No. The only You can only examine something that's visible. In other words, what's visible? Your works, your, your deeds. What are you examining? You're not examining the wind. You're not examining something that's invisible. You're examining something that's tangible, that exists, that's distinguishable. And then we have James on the other hand. And who's James talking to? He's talking to habitual churchgoers. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to people who are highly religious, but who don't resemble the teachings of Scripture. They've invented this imaginary world where you can be a follower of Jesus without actually following Jesus. Imagine that. Well, here's the thing. If you're not loving who God loved, if you're not doing what God did, if you don't love who Jesus loved, if you're not doing the things Jesus did, well, then you're not following Him. But didn't He say that as the Father sent me, I so now send you? Yes, it's the same way. In other words, if your life does not clearly, I'm not saying it's perfect. None of us are going to look like Jesus. But here's the thing. If there's not Jesus characteristics in your life, you're not following him. This idea that you could be a, a follower and not follow is it's craziness. When Jesus chose his disciples, he didn't walk up to them and say, listen to me. He didn't come up to them and say, learn from me. He walked up to them and say, said, follow me. Follow me. A disciple follows Jesus. And you know what? Everything Paul taught and everything James taught was built on what Jesus taught. All you have to do is go back and read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, 8, 5, 6, and 7. And guess what? You'll see that over and over, especially just go back and read Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says over and over, good tree produces good fruit, bad tree produces bad fruit. I liken the man that hears my words and doesn't listen to me as a man who built his house on the sand. Over and over and over, he's talking about people who, who, have, who don't do what they say they believe. And he's saying that's false. Let me, let me show you something about works. I want to show you from Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at this, these verses together. For by grace we've been saved through faith. Isn't that wonderful? We love that verse. And not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Praise the Lord. Let's all go home. Wait a minute. Maybe we should keep reading. For we're His workmanship or poema. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I want you to notice verse 9 works, verse 10 works. Look at it. And what, what is it telling us? Not all works are equal. Not all works are equal. You see, you have, you have different, you have works that cause people to boast, and then you have works that, that complete people like they did Abraham. Or, you see? You have, you have works, and then you have good works. You have flesh works, and you have good works. See, there's fruit, but not all fruit is equal. Jesus said there's good fruit and there's bad fruit. They're both fruit, but they're not the same. You see, plastic fruit is not the same as real fruit. You might call them both fruit. They might look like fruit, but they're not the same. They're not the same. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Not all works are equal. So we need to know what kind of works the Bible's talking about when it talks about works. And so for us, listen, we're at this amazing juncture in the life of our faith family. This is so exciting that, you know, we have good works to walk in. I am 100% convinced that God has dispersed us to do something great with us. I am 100% convinced of that. That's his desire. We have people to reach. We have a community to serve. We have neighbors to love. We have families to feed. We have orphans to protect. We have churches to plant. We have nations to go to. We have resources to raise. We have things to do. And you know what? It can sound on the surface like, wait a minute, that sounds like works. That's not works. That's good works. That's love. That's things that, that God's called us to do motivated by love. They're good works that God's called us to in this season, in this time, for us to walk in them. I believe with all my heart, with all of my heart, our best days are ahead of us. They're ahead of us. If we'll just rise up and seize this moment, if we'll press in hard, if we will in one accord just come together to be a part in every way, to push ourselves, the fields are white for the harvest. The harvest is great. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would raise up laborers for the field that we'd have distinguishable faith, that we'd be all in, that we'd be all hands on deck for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. Not so that we can earn His love, not so that we can be accepted, because we are loved and we are accepted. You see, there's a process. And if you just... If you just read Scripture, you see the process. It's Jesus alone, but it's Jesus' work for us. But then it begins a work in us called sanctification that becomes His work through us, which is authentication that 
Jesus' work has begun in us. So I really want you to examine yourself this morning. I want you to ask yourself, do do I have distinguishable faith? Because there's a really good chance that there's some of you this morning that are habitual churchgoers and that your salvation has been pinned on things that you've done. Not the Christ that you surrender to. You can't meet Him and not change. It's impossible. It's impossible. And so this is a great opportunity to repent and say, God, I surrender myself to You as my Lord that you give me a new heart, that you'll fill me with your Spirit, that I can walk in your power, obey your commands. I'll sacrificially serve you, that I will do the things that you've called me to do, not to earn your love, but in your love. And listen, all of us need to use this time to examine our hearts that we might press in deeper to the heart of God, that God's heart would be our heart, that we would see the people and the things around us the way God sees them, that this opportunity would not slip through our fingertips, but that we would make the most of it for His honor and glory. Hey, I love you. Let me pray for you and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for real faith. Thank you for for good trees that produce good fruit. Thank you for all of the beautiful trees that make up this family. Thank you for the hundreds of ways that I'm able to see so many people sacrificially serving you and loving you and shining for you and being such a distinguishable example of the transforming power of the gospel. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning for all of us to get right with you. And Lord, thank you for those who even now feel convicted to bow their heads and to get some things straight with you. And Lord, thank you for those this morning that realize that their story has been based on something that they've heard other people say, but the realization that They are saved, but that they need to follow you in believer's baptism and that you're never going to be Lord until they do the things that you've commanded them to do. And Lord, for those who bow their head and surrender to you for the very first time, thank you for the gift of salvation, for the love that you have. Thank you. Thanks for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you. Have a great day today.